You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. What did the Ninth Circuit base its decision on, Rick? The Ninth Circuit decided that the football coach's lawsuit against the school district failed because the school district was justified in concluding that the football coach's conduct violated the First Amendment. The point here is just the case involves an interplay between an employment lawsuit, because the football coach was filing an employment lawsuit, but also the First Amendment, because the school district was invoking the First Amendment as a reason for its actions. So, you know, the nutshell version, is, as everybody knows from the media, is that the football coach was praying publicly after games on the field. And this activity got a lot of public notice and comment. And what the Ninth Circuit concluded was that under the Supreme Court's First Amendment doctrine, it would violate the First Amendment for the schools to have permitted the coach to continue this practice. And why is that? Because in the Ninth Circuit's view, considering all the factual circumstances, the football coach's prayer practices constituted an unconstitutional, quote-unquote, endorsement of religion. Is this decision in line with Supreme Court opinions? You know, the Supreme Court for nearly 40 years now has been trying to come up with some tests or rules that will help us to decide when an official or a public employee's conduct is an unconstitutional endorsement or when it's perfectly permissible private religious activity. Obviously, just because you work for the government, you don't lose your right to pray, including to pray in public sometimes. So it's important to understand that this case is very fact-specific. It does not stand for a general rule that public school teachers may not pray during the day. It doesn't stand for a rule that football coaches may not pray before or after games. And I'm sure football coaches are going to keep praying during games no matter what the court <laughs> say. Uh, but the court went through the facts of this particular case in pretty close detail and just determined that when you consider the context and the publicity and various statements that the coach had made, that when you put all that together, the question to ask is, would the reasonable person think that the school district was endorsing the coach's religious activity if it allowed him to continue that? Or would the reasonable observer think that the coach was just engaging in private religious activity, which is permitted? And the Ninth Circuit concluded that, no, he considered all the facts. A reasonable observer would come away thinking that the school district, by allowing this, is actually endorsing the religious conduct. And by endorsing it, perhaps also pressuring players to participate. And the players, of course, are young people who are in school. What did we learn about doctrine from this decision? 
this is a case that in terms of doctrine, I don't think really breaks any new ground. There's certainly room for disagreement about whether the court applied the doctrine correctly. That's always true in these very fact-specific cases. But one way to think about what happened here is just that although it's high profile, it's just another illustration of the fact that courts and litigants struggle to interpret exactly what the Supreme Court's requirements are when it comes to the no establishment rule. Because again, it is not an establishment of religion for public employees to engage in religious expression. At least it's not necessarily an establishment of religion, except when it is. (laughs) (laughs) So Rick, what would you say are the outer limits of how a teacher can pray at a school? For example, bowing her head and saying a silent prayer or bowing her head and saying a prayer out loud. Would either of those be permissible? Yeah, so the court, um, and there was a concurring opinion uh, in addition to the, the lead one that really went out of its way to sort of make sure that readers didn't get the wrong impression and interpret this too broadly. Um, so for a public school teacher, you know, at lunch to bow her head and say a prayer um, it's permissible, as I read this. Again, we're assuming that, uh, you know, the teacher's not, like, looking to her student on the right and saying, hey, by the way, if you join me in prayer, you get an A, right? You can't do that. But expression, even religious expression that's private, is permissible so long as the reasonable observer wouldn't think that the government was adopting it. That, that's the key question. So. Nobody thinks that if a high school science teacher at lunchtime bows his head and says a prayer, or even if the high school science teacher, in my view, you know, has a Bible on his desk that he reads during downtime or something, the reasonable observer is not going to think, ah, the government is endorsing that religious activity and urging me to participate in it too. But the Ninth Circuit thought here, in this, in this case involving the coach, that the behavior was public, it was on the 50-yard line, it was widely commented on in the press. Players and opposing team members and other coaches were invited to join. Again, it was in kind of full view on the field after games in the context of a pretty public school activity. That if you put all that together, the reasonable observer would think, huh, this religious activity seems like it's not just the coach's private activity, It's more of a school activity. And because of that perception, it implicates First Amendment's rule against establishment. Again, I can't underscore enough that these cases often just depend, they almost always depend on facts and context. And sometimes the question, you know, which side of the line the behavior falls on is going to be a judgment call. Let's talk about the Supreme Court, which had declined to hear the coach's case on the preliminary injunction. Justices Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch signaled that they might intercede in the future if the Ninth Circuit went too far to restrict religious liberty in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, again, at the time it initially went up, it it seems clear that at least some of the justices, again, keep in mind that these cases really do tend to turn on facts, context, and circumstances. And I took the justices just to be highlighting the fact, well, we want to be sure that the Washington court or the Ninth Circuit isn't going so far as to say that private prayer by a public school employee is always unconstitutional. 
And the Ninth Circuit doesn't say that. And they, and they take some pains to not say that. You're right. The Ninth Circuit just almost sharply in some places emphasized that it did not agree with the coach's characterization of the record. So not only do we have a case that depends a lot on facts and circumstances, we have a case where the parties and the court don't agree on what the facts and circumstances are. And, you know, again, that makes that makes it all the more important to not kind of overread this case as standing for a broad rule against all visible prayer by public school officials, because I think it's pretty clear that's not what the court held. So they are going to appeal this to try to get the Supreme Court to take this case again. How likely do you think it is, considering what the Ninth Circuit actually decided and what Justice Alito said before, how likely do you think it is that the Supreme Court would take the case? Yeah, I don't think it's very likely that the court will take it, in part because of, you know, again, the controversy about what the facts, or at least the disagreement about what the facts are, and also just that the court took such pain to make to make it clear that it, it was basing its decision on the particulars of this case. You know, the rule of thumb as a general matter is that the Supreme Court doesn't exist just to correct errors that courts make when they're applying the law to the facts. Instead, the Supreme Court sees its job as making sure the lower courts have the law right. And although the law in this area is kind of confusing, um, as we saw in the case about the war memorial cross a little while ago, the Ninth Circuit here, I think, basically recited what the Supreme Court has said the rules are. So I don't see this as being a likely case for Supreme Court review myself. I don't know if the uh, coach will t- try to take the case to the full Ninth Circuit or to, you know, to a larger en banc panel. I haven't read whether they plan to do that or not. But if this particular decision were presented to the Supreme Court, I, I don't think they would grant review. There seem to be a lot of factors here. For example, the coach wanted to pray on the 50-yard line and he wanted to pray after the game. There was concern that some of the students were feeling pressured to pray with him. And it wasn't just the coach and a couple of players. They have pictures of the coach surrounded by a group of players and the media. So there's a lot going on. Which do you think were the most important factors to the court? I don't know that there is one particular factor. Certainly. One of the important factors, though, was, you know, the, the kind of prominent location at the 50-yard line, uh, the timing, the end of a sort of a culmination of an obvious school event, namely a football game, the participation of not only players just kind of walking out to join, but, you know, the opposing team and others. And then I think there's some language in the Ninth Circuit's opinion that suggests, I'm not saying so much that they relied on this, but it suggests that they were reacting a bit to some of the coaches' kind of public statements that I think they thought were kind of like defiant and, uh, you know, drawing attention to the behavior. Now, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that I'd say that the court relied on that, but that did seem to be part of the atmospherics, if you want. You know, the, uh, the court thought it was relevant that the school, in the court's view, had tried to accommodate the coach by telling him, you know, it's okay to pray before and after game. Here's a place where you can do it, do it somewhere else, but had, you know, directed him not to do it 
on the 50 in this public way and that he nonetheless persisted in doing this. So this wasn't like a one-off thing where, you know, a coach who didn't have any advance notice, you know, was sort of inspired by the spirit to go out on the 50-yard line, said a prayer, and then got fired for it. That's not what happened here. I think that was relevant to the court, too. Thanks for joining me on the Bloomberg Law Show, Rick. That's Professor Richard Garnett of Notre Dame Law School. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The Biden administration is on track to reverse the government's position in more cases before the Supreme Court than the Justice Department did during the first full high court term of Donald Trump's presidency. The Trump Justice Department changed positions in four high-profile cases during the first full Supreme Court term. In just under two months, the Biden Justice Department has flipped positions in five cases. Joining me is Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. But first of all, how unusual is it to have an administration change position, one administration to the next? Well, it's not unheard of, but it does happen pretty rarely, um, at least before the Trump administration. And that's because, you know, these changes in the federal government's position can really hurt their credibility with the justices. Uh, And so, you know, we've seen previous administrations really try to be careful um, and weigh Uh, the decision whether or not to change the government's position in these cases pending before the Supreme Court. Tell us about the Biden administration. Tell us about the number of flips and how it compares with the Trump administration's. Well, it looks like the Biden administration is going to be on track to reverse the government's position in more cases um, than the Justice Department did under Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, and, you know, that's not really surprising if you if you think about how opposed these two administrations are. Um, but it's something interesting to watch in the Supreme Court because, you know, prior to the Trump administration, the justices had really shown frustration um, with these changes in positions. And, and now, you know, not so much. So um, it's kind of it's something that we're seeing changing in Supreme Court practice. Are these mostly because of policy changes? So these cases um, involved really a change in the legal interpretation. So there are some cases where the Biden administration has changed policies, and that's affected Supreme Court's cases. So I'm thinking of a lot of really um, controversial immigration issues, um, Donald Trump's Remain in Mexico policy, for example. Uh, the Biden administration decided to wind that down. And so there's really nothing uh, for the federal government to take a position on. The policy doesn't exist any longer. But the changes in positions are are typically in cases where the government is not actually a party, but it's just a friend of the court. And they've just changed the way that they look at the law. Um, And so that those are the kinds of changes that we're looking at here. Let's talk about some of the cases where the Biden administration has flipped positions. So there was a change in the position on the Affordable Care Act, which was expected. So tell us a little bit about the change there. 
So the Affordable Care Act, which was, of course, passed um, uh, under President Obama with the help of now President Biden, um, was the first a case where the Biden administration flipped positions. And there, the Trump administration has really taken a surprising position uh, in order to say that the entire Affordable Care Act had to fall because one part of it was unconstitutional. The Biden administration was expected to come in and change that position, and they did very quickly. Um, but we've seen them in some other cases uh, change positions where, you know, it was kind of a question mark if the Biden administration was, was going to risk its credibility and change courses, and in a number they did. The case argued today involving union organizers in a takings case Did the Biden administration also change positions from the Trump administration in that case? They did. And so this was a case um, really uh, challenging a longtime California law. It's uh, kind of a new conservative push to take down uh, these laws that allow employers to have access to employees at their work sites. Um, And, you know, the Trump administration had sided with the business owners and the Biden administration um, changed courses, uh, did a complete 180 in that case and said, you know, this is something that should be allowed and something that states should be able to do. What's the voting rights dispute that they changed positions on? Well, that one's a really interesting change because uh, that came in a case out of Arizona, um, a challenging to Arizona voting restrictions. The Trump administration had said those voting restrictions were just fine, and the Biden administration actually agrees, uh, but the Biden administration said that the test that the Trump administration uh, was wrong, but they didn't actually explain um, what they think the test should be. Um, So that is still an open question. We'll have to see what the Biden administration thinks the law should be. in a future case. But that's really important uh, case because, you know, that is going to set up the test that's going to be uh, at the center of all, a lot of these voting rights disputes that we're going to see going forward. Kimberly, tell us about the First Step Act and what the Biden administration's position is. The First Step Act is a law that was passed under President Trump that sought to reduce uh, harsh sentencing out of, you know, laws that had really tried to reduce crime in the 1990s. So, this case to ask when an individual can receive a sentence reduction for crack cocaine use um, or possession. And this is actually a surprising change in the Biden administration because typically in, you know, in criminal cases, the federal government's position doesn't often change from one administration to the next. There's kind of some institutional concerns that, you know, are the same under Republican or Democratic administration. But the Biden administration did argue for a sentence reduction here. And so the Supreme Court's going to have to find somebody to step into the federal government's shoes and argue that case for them. You spoke to former Deputy Solicitor General Michael Dreeben, and he gave some advice about how the government should handle these changes in positions. He did. And, you know, he was kind of hearkening back to the time under the Obama administration where, you know, the federal government caught a lot of heat for changing positions um, and saying, you know, upon further reflection, we've decided to change positions. And you saw a lot of the justices, particularly the chief justice, be sort of offended, um, saying that it wasn't a reconsideration of this position. It's just because there was an election and there's a new administration. So, you know, 
Michael Dreeben uh, said that the Biden administration and any future administrations should really just be honest about why they're changing positions and set out, you know, what the change is very clearly so that the justices don't think they're trying to hide anything. Um, and, you know, they can really just look at the merits of the point rather than trying to determine, you know, what's the change here and why is there a change happening? With a lot of these changes, it seems like it must be obvious to the justices why the administration is changing position. That's true. I mean, certainly in, you know, the Affordable Care Act case, you can understand why the government changed positions back to one that you would expect the government to to be making, that the Affordable Care Act can be saved. Um, But there are others where, you know, like this First Step Act case, where it's not so obvious. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see the Solicitor General explain um, why it's taking this particular position. I remember there was at least one case during the Trump administration where the administration was arguing against itself. It was a case involving the NLRB, but there might have been another case along similar lines involving the EEOC. So that's right. And really kind of memorably to kick off the Trump administration's first full term in front of the Supreme Court, the Trump Solicitor General was arguing against the NLRB. So you have the United States versus the United States. And, you know, that is one reason why we see the Biden administration making so many changes is because the Trump administration, you know, made changes that uh, kind of went against what you would expect the federal government to be taking. But yes, that was a really memorable case where, you know, the Trump administration was arguing against itself um, in, you know, it's kind of first showing at the Supreme Court. Dreeben also named some cases where he thought the Biden administration might change its position. And one was in the death penalty for the Boston Marathon bomber, Johar Sarnayev. An appeals court had vacated Sarnayev's death sentence. And the Supreme Court is now going to review that appeals court decision. I was surprised the Supreme Court took up that case today when it seems likely the Biden administration may change positions. Biden campaigned on a promise to eliminate the federal death penalty. Well, that's right. And so a lower court actually undid uh, the death penalty um, in that case. And the Trump administration sought to reinstate it. Now, the Biden administration hasn't actually filed uh, anything in this case, so it is possible that they could change positions here. And I think that's really something that the administration is currently trying to, to you know, figure out whether or not they are going to change positions in line with their policies um, or if they're going to stick to more of the institutional argument, um, which I mentioned in criminal cases, tends not change under you know, the different administrations. I'm so curious as to why the court took that case when it's obviously one where there's going to be some kind of friction between the Trump administration and the Biden administration's position. Was that seen as a case that the justices would take? Well, you know, it was a, it was a real question mark, and the justices have had it in front of them for a long time. I will say that the Supreme Court has been just fine with granting cases where it seems destined to, uh, you know, eventually dismiss the case from its docket because the positions have changed. Uh, we've seen that happen a number of times already, and has really led to a pretty light Supreme Court term because of that. But you know, the other thing is that the Supreme Court can always appoint an amicus. 
um, to argue what we would think is the federal government's traditional position. Um, and we saw them do that in the first step case recently. It's not as if the justices can't hear the case if the federal government switches sides. Uh, it'll just be a matter of if they want to go ahead with it. And Kimberly, so the justices had their first in-person meeting in a long time? That's right. They had met in October. Most of them had met uh, for the swearing-in of Amy Coney Barrett. But this was the first time that the justices were actually in the courthouse for business. They met on Friday in their private conference. At least most of them did. We know at least one, although we don't know who, uh, participated remotely. Um, but that is a big development for the Supreme Court, which has been working remotely like many of us since last March. Um, and importantly, all of the justices have been fully vaccinated. So um, life starting to get a little bit back to normal at the high court. But they're still going to continue with the oral arguments by telephone? That's right, at least through April. And that's likely because, you know, while the justices are vaccinated, it's not as if they can go into the courtroom and hear live arguments with just the nine of them. There are a lot of other court staff that have to be there. Of course, the attorneys have to be in the courtroom and, you know, attorneys aren't being vaccinated in the DMV area just yet. Thanks so much, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.